namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa utangamang sangang namasami <clears throat> so, good evening everyone. As you can hear, a new voice. The other, the other voice, which you have been hearing a lot, I think, really appreciate a break. And uh, so, uh, Ajahn Amra has invited me this morning to offer some reflections here during this retreat. And... Um, Maybe also just to kind of get a little bit in contact with all of you, because I hardly know anyone here, especially of the lay people and also the nuns. Um, just to say a little bit about myself, how I got here. Um, I've actually uh, been uh, on a, this past 13, 14 months, I've been on a very free-willing time, so to speak. I used to be a senior monk, a leader of a community in Switzerland, in the Swiss Alps, a small community, monastic community there. And then uh, in the autumn of 2018, I handed back the responsibilities, the duties. And from then on, I was free to do whatever I wanted to do. <laughs> we have a very polite term for that we call people who have uh, stepped back from their uh, leadership duties. We call them emeritus or emerita, if it's a woman. And uh, I always wondered, what, what does that mean, actually? Well, of course, it's obvious the word merit is there. So I, I thought, well, I must have some merit that I can now finally do what I want to do. <laughs> and, uh, of course, this... Uh, Doing what I want to do happens within a certain context. It's still within the monastic context. Um, it's not uh, completely freewheeling, but within certain boundaries, a certain context. And I thought as I had been quite tied down by my responsibilities and duties in the years before, I lived in Switzerland for 22 years, I take the opportunity to get to know some new places, places I'd never seen monasteries which belong to our tradition in other parts of Europe, but also I spent the last Vasa in Canada and Tisarna Monastery, and even had a chance to visit the monastery in New Hampshire as well, short visit though, and uh, get an impression how life is in these monasteries. And of course, every monastery functions slightly different, a different tune to the same basic um, theme, the same basic melody, and uh, the rhythms are different, the, maybe the schedule also, and uh, the routines, the amount of work, um, the way the community works together or doesn't work together, and all these things are different. But the basic theme is the same, so I personally, especially in all these places, having been given a lot of space, Basically, you can 
organize your time as you like, do what you like, and uh, which actually might sound great, but actually it's not quite so easy if you've been used to being part of an institution for a long time, you know, very regular routines and so forth. And you become, in a way, strangely institutionalized. And uh, so for me, it was also an opportunity to have a look at that. What is that? What is that sense of being institutionalized? What would it be if I'd lived without an institution, if I just really could organize and structure my day, my time, as I wish, as it comes into um, my mind, into my consciousness? And so I must say, it was not very difficult, actually, to switch gear, to ch change. It was actually uh, initially even a little bit of euphoria, of course. Oh, finally, something new, something, uh, you know, which uh, I hadn't quite experienced, at least for an extended period of time before. So it was great to have all this time in the world for little old me and myself. But then, as we all know, each euphoria is followed by another feeling, <laughs> another felt sense. Uh, euphoria is a state which comes and goes. It lasts for a while. Maybe you one indulges into it a little bit and and makes the most of it. But eventually, you come back to down to uh, to down to earth and just live uh, a a normal life of a monk, more in the background of a monastery. And uh, also, uh, actually, uh, I should also mention, besides these new places which I had a chance to visit in these different countries, um, I've been now in Britain for about six weeks, and besides here Amravati, I visited uh, Chitterst as well. In fact, that's uh, where it all began for me I, when I was... Uh, uh, a layman living in, in the south of England. That was the monastery where I used to go as a layperson and practice there for four, four years, yes, before I entered the monastery. And the monastery which I entered was this one. So as you can imagine, the, uh, these places here in England are loaded with perceptions, with memories and all sorts of stories and so forth. And I don't really want to go into that, so don't worry, I will not give a nostalgic uh, talk tonight and talking about the good old days. Um, this is not what I have in mind, but I can't help to acknowledge that that is a, a different kind of perception, huh? to come to places which have, have a very strong sense of familiarity, a place which were, where one has grown up, as first as an Anagarika, which was here actually, in fact, actually, I'm a historical figure. Did you know that? I was the first Anagarika to take precepts on the male side, anyway, at Amaravati in 1984, just after uh, it opened. And uh, so I spent my first three-quarters of a year here in this place before I moved on to Devon and then eventually taking Upasampada, the acceptance into the bhikkhu order at Chithurst. And then also I got to know the, the monastery in the north, so I moved around all the British monasteries at the time, the four of them, before then uh, taking on 
uh, a post as a vice abbot, I can say, in Dhammapala in Switzerland, the assistant to the senior monk at the time, Argentino Damo, and later on it evolved into a little bit of a co-abbotship for a few years, and then in 2005, I became the single, single lonely abbot. And being an abbot can be, a, as I'm phrasing it in this way, can be a lonely position if one is not careful, if one is too much coming from, say, an attitude of um, control, of, uh, you know, very strong, putting one's foot down. Now it's me calling the shots. Now it's me who says um, how the tune is played in this place. And then, of course, uh, one might feel, oh, okay, this is, gives me a kind of sense of power. But you start to feel very lonely after a while. So I was very aware of this danger of um, isolating oneself from my fellow friends and colleagues in the monastery. So right from the start, I was really looking at these kind of tendencies one might have to maybe also out of a sense of insecurity and uncertainty because I didn't really know how do you do abbot, you know? <laughs> how do you do this? I wasn't born an abbot. I had watched and observed other abbots. Some of them did it quite skillfully, others not so skillfully. And, and I thought through observation I might have learned something. But it's not actually until you're in this situation yourself then the real test happens, isn't it? Even though we can learn by observation of others, and say, oh yes, well, when I'm going to be in that position, that's not how I'm going to do it. Or oh, this is great, how he does it. He's a great communicator, really in touch with everyone, really connected. That's more what I, the direction I want to go. And so, um, over the course of the, the year, the, or the years, I should say, one develops in uh, a new role, a new position, so forth, becomes more um, confident in it, maybe at best from a more natural sense of confidence. And then once one has reached a peak of feeling, feeling very familiar, very confident, very, um, very much at home in the place and within the community, then already the other, the end is inside, or the dawning of, oh, this is not forever, this is going to come to an end eventually. It's not, we are not uh, entering this life as monastics to become somebody in a particular position. This is not what it's all about. Certainly I didn't, and I'm I really, uh, I don't think it's a too bold assumption to say that about anyone here. None of you has come into this life because you want to become a powerful abbess or abbot, do you? But what has called me, and again, I don't know, I'm too far off with this assumption, what has probably called many of you, maybe all of you, and including the lay people, has called you to visit the monastery maybe on a regular basis to spend extended period of time here during winter retreat, an intensive period of practice. This is the yearning for truth, isn't it? We want to know 
what is behind the surface of our uh, life we're leading as, say, a community member um, who uh, has a certain role to play within the community. And also we even further, it goes even, of course, further than just looking at those are very much external, the external parts of things, but we're looking at our own particular identification, which we have the particular aspects of our own personality, what we call a person, of, the, of that whom we take ourselves to be. Certainly that for me was always a, a question lingering around right from the day one. I really wanted to know who that real me is, not the surface me, not the role player, not the one um, also who believes his feelings and emotions and his thoughts and the whole, uh, you know, change in show of things, the objects and activities which pass through my consciousness. It's quite early on in practice one can see this is not really who we are, is it? Because if we could say this is what we are or who we are, then of course we could uh, claim ownership. We could say, well, may this stay with me, and may we stay with me at all times. But we can't, huh? All we can see and witness any given time is a whole parade of phenomena of impressions, mental, emotional impressions arising and passing away inside our consciousness. And especially now here in a retreat, during retreat time, it's a particularly great opportunity to give our complete attention to that. To ask ourselves, well, who is that? What is, what is that behind all that? What is that mind or that heart, maybe I should say, behind the whole show of phenomena, visiting us day in, day out? This whole flux of things. Is there anything behind? And of course, in the Buddhist teachings, we very often talk about uh, a very important aspect to recognize, the earlier the better, is to see that there's phenomena, there are activities, there are objects arising in consciousness, but then there's also that which is aware of these same objects and activities and phenomena arising in consciousness. So what is that? Is that, this, is that different or is it the same? When we look inwardly, we, we can notice it seems to be taking place at this at the same location, if we, if we care to locate it anywhere. I know it's a very dicey subject to locate consciousness or locate awareness. Where is it? You know, where, where is it? Is it up here in the brain? Or is it here in the heart? Is it in the intestines, maybe? Scientists have found out there's a lot of a lot of information travel from the intestines to our brain. Might actually be more clever to assume consciousness in the intestines <laughs> rather than in our brain, <laughs> which doesn't sound very appealing to me. I mean, of course, we're not talking about the contents of the intestines, but about the nerve, the nervous, the nerve system, 
the impulses uh, coming from the intestines, which then get uh, moved upstairs. The same with our heart. Apparently, our heart also gives a lot more impulses to our brain than vice versa. And so one could actually come to the conclusion, well, maybe that's more, it sounds better, doesn't it? My heart as a seed of consciousness sounds better than my intestines. <laughs> I remember um, some years ago, I was uh, staying in a Burmese monastery. Uh, that was another little episode. Once I'd left England and after I'd been a vice abbot for three years, I felt I needed a break, so I went to Asia for a few years. And part of that I spent in Burma. And uh, I was in one monastery in Rangoon for the Vasa called Panditarama. Some of you might know it. And the Sayadaw there, Upandita, he had the habit of inviting the foreign yogis, it's the meditators are called yogis there, for a kind of question and answer session, which usually the end result of that is one question asked and then an hour and a half answer. But, but then on one occasion, he took initiative himself and he also wanted to test us as yogis. And I was a monk yogi, of course. And he, so um, he asked us if we know where consciousness is, resides. Where does consciousness reside? Where is it? And everybody, the whole room went like this. <laughs> Nobody dared to say anything, including myself. I didn't dare to open my mouth. And then, of course, he gave the answer. And uh, he said that consciousness is in the heart, but it's not really in the physical heart as we would imagine it, but it's in the blood of the heart. But it's not really in the blood of the heart as we would imagine it, but it's a sensory element in the blood of the heart. Ooh, I found that really mind-blowing, sensory element. I never thought about it like that. Hmm. And then he posed a little quiz to us. So what happens when a heart surgeon takes a heart out of a body and before the new heart is put into the body, and the body obviously is connected to the machine to let the blood circulate, where is the consciousness? And he looked really with a very mischievous grin at us. <laughs> And nobody dared to answer. Everybody said, oh, where is it? And he said, in the machine, of course. <laughs> so, being a skeptical Westerner, I was not, I was puzzled, but not satisfied with the answer. So I thought, hmm, maybe still further research to be done on this subject, you know, where is consciousness? And as we all know nowadays, uh, there's a lot of uh, modern scientific research in that field. I don't want to go into it further. And um, of course, it's the old uh, holy grail for a long time of science to find out where consciousness resides. And uh, there are many assumptions made. Of course, there's an assumption made it's residing in the brain. Eventually, we will have the instrument to find that it's, it's there. But there's assumptions, aren't they? It's not really 
something we can uh, testify for sure. So do we actually have to find out in that way? Do we have to find and objectify consciousness? Do we have to find consciousness as an object out there? Is that actually a, a clever way of going about it? Science has to do it, isn't it? Science can only operate like subject-object. Huh? I'm the observer here, and there's the object there. And I'm looking at this, and I have very refined instruments to find out um, what is happening over there. But when we are attending to our mental, emotional um, processes, we don't need an instrument, do we? We don't need a magnifying glass. We don't need a super-duper computer or anything like that with a kind of where pictures are, you know, transferred onto the screen to, in order to find out. We can just attend to our own processes as carefully, as attentively, and as consciously as we're able to. And in, 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 the, in the Dharma, in the, the Buddhist teaching, there's a lot of reference to that uh, knowing element that our mind or our heart, maybe I should say heart, maybe I should say heart-mind, when we're talking about the citta, we call in Buddhism the citta, that the, the citta has certainly the ability to know. It can know directly. It can only know directly when we are fully switched on, when our awareness or mindfulness is fully switched on, then the citta knows. And it knows immediately, without any delay. It doesn't know in hindsight, and then, oh, that was that. No, that's already, it's still good. It can still be helpful. We can still have our aha experiences and say, ah, oh, this is how that worked. But when we're really switched on, when we're really attentive and careful and, and mindful and aware, when we are being the knower, so to speak, I think you can't put it more close than that, rather than trying to become somebody who knows and understands in the future, we are being the knower. And this is, of course, a pointer. It points to something. It points to an ability we have that we can be the knower in the immediacy of the moment. And it goes, of course, moment by moment by moment, ideally uninterruptedly. And as we have to be realistic about our own abilities, where we stand, what the um, um, status quo for us is, our own spiritual development, we have to admit maybe there is something we need to do, something we need to develop, something we need to cultivate. This might sound very inviting and very good to be the knowing or be the knower, just knowing things as they are, here in the here and now, without distortion, very inviting, beautiful pointer. But how, are we, how able are we? Or is it just wishful thinking in our minds? So that's, of course, why we have training. In, in Buddhism we speak about there's a training to be done. We're training in mindfulness and awareness. We have a, a beautiful sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, one of the core teachings, in the, within the Dharma context, points to that training in mindfulness. So we're using these, um, 
these four points of reference, the body, the feelings, the mental impressions, and the, uh, and the various objects which we're using for our contemplation to probe deeper, to uh, closer, to come more and more in touch with the immediacy of our experience. And first, we might detect, or we might see, we might witness a mind was completely all over the place. Huh? We completely uh, enticed by our feelings and we believe any thought, any emotion flickering through our consciousness. We carry it away. We keep giving commentaries and sub-commentaries. And before we know it, another five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, half an hour, half a day, a day or even days, even months, and in some people's life, oh, you know, a whole succession of years, a whole lifetime can pass by without one moment of being conscious. That's very sad, isn't it? It's very, if we really think about it. But ignorance, the fundamental culprit, ignorance, fundamental human ignorance, is widespread. We can witness it, sometimes easier. <laughs> In other people, <laughs> we, can, we can point the finger and say, well, he or she is really ignorant, but how about recognizing ignorance in ourselves? How far, to what extent, are we still ignorant so we don't really see? And how far are we willing to overcome this ignorance to train our minds, to train our hearts, to establish this inner knowing within ourselves? on a regular basis. Not every second Tuesday, but on a regular basis, ongoing. And that's what the training is for. The training is, is for us to provide us a continuity in our life. So that we're not dependent on conditions, we're also not dependent on states, not on meditative states, not on other states. As you know, all states are in their very nature um, based on the three characteristics. They are impermanent, they are unsatisfactory, and they are, have no owner, they're not substantial. So futile to invest any emotional, mental energy into them. This is not difficult to grasp intellectually, is it? It's a, in a way a no-brainer, but it's good to acknowledge that and then, but then take it deeply, deeply into the into the research lab, which is here. This is our research lab, and we have it with us. It's our own heart, our mind. There we look, investigate. And we're using these seemingly ideal laboratory situations we have here on a retreat to do that in great detail. We don't have a lot of external triggers not so many anyway, as we have, say, in the normal routine, even normal monastic routine is a lot more varied, a lot more complex than what's happening now. Everything is toned down. All we have to do is just looking after the basics, isn't it? Looking after ourselves, nourish the body, clean the body, do a bit of chores in the morning and so forth. And uh, the rest we can devote all the time of the world to this inner exploration, to cultivate in the faculty of 
awareness and mindfulness. So it becomes more and more something which is maybe first second nature, but maybe eventually first nature. We're living from an aware place within ourselves. And this is, this is the invitation, isn't it? This is the invitation we were giving by the Buddha. He said, if you do that, if you develop that, then there are certain benefits to be reaped from. And sometimes the benefits which are mentioned can be a little bit intimidating, isn't it? If we're mindful, completely mindful, for seven days, uninterruptedly, then something's happening. <laughs> but I, I always like to encourage people not to put the measuring stick for oneself too high, to expect too much of oneself, to put that whole goal orientation, the thinking about goals I want to achieve, even the goal I want to achieve on this retreat, on the back burner. Yes, we can't pretend not to have goals in the order that there aren't goals. Certainly there are, and they are talked about. But we don't want to make the task more difficult than it is already for us. It's already challenging enough just to be with it day in, day out, uninterruptedly, and not falling into periods when we're losing the plot and get lost um, in our own thinking and emoting process. So I'd like to encourage us all um, to use this time we have here and uh, on the retreat to explore that deeper, to make that more our home, to make the, the knowing citta, the knowing heart, our home. As one way of putting it, we can also say to make it our refuge. There really is no other refuge. There are no refuges outside of ourselves. Many people are searching a refuge in the material realm. Still, especially in the affluent Western countries, admittedly out of a need for security and safety within themselves to invest so much energy to feel materially secure, have more money, buy shares, invest in property, get bitcoins, etc., 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 just in order to have a sense of safety. Well, you never know, something could go wrong and, you know, the stock market crashes or the property market collapses and then disaster. Yes, certainly these things do happen from time to time. And uh, if you don't have an inner refuge, you're in for trouble, isn't it? Because that's been your investment. Your emotional investment has been the external things. And then when these external things change to the detriment of your expectations, then you suffer. And that's why in the spiritual path, especially here in the Buddhist context, we emphasize the refuge. We have an externalized way of taking the refuges as we do it regularly on the suppositor days. We renew our commitment to the refuges and the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. But then, of course, we all uh, then try to bring it inward. What is the Buddha inwardly? Not the historical Buddha, but the Buddha here, or the Dhamma here, 
or the Sangha here. And so the knowing heart, or the, sometimes also called the heart of awareness, that, is, that can be a, a really reliable resource and refuge for the rest of our lives. Now, if you don't believe me, well, you're free not to believe me, of course. It's completely up to you to put yourself to the test if you want to uh, do it in that in this particular way, or maybe you have uh, for yourself another angle on practice, on Dhamma practice, depending on where you are in your evolution of your particular individual consciousness, that might be the case. But still, we only we ourselves can know, isn't it? That if this works or not, if the heart of awareness is something genuine and sincere for us, we can only know by using it, applying it. Otherwise, it will just stay a wonderful thought, wishful thinking, an ideal to aspire towards, to maybe maybe we postpone it into the future. We say, oh yes, when I've done this, that, and the other, then maybe. But I would encourage us all, no, this can be a resource and in inner refuge throughout whatever else we're doing in our Dhamma practice. The knowing chitta can always be our refuge. So with this, um, this uh, reflection, I'd like to finish my talk. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>